This episode of the Sports Hipster Podcast is brought to you by Left Turn Media. Visit leftturn.ca for all your digital and social media needs. As a footnote to our show today, a brief look at a sport no school ever dropped, no scandal ever tainted. You'll find no referee on the field. All players are honor bound to call their own fouls. And the ultimate reward for their time, money and effort, nothing. Nothing save the joy of competition. A refreshing reminder of what sport was meant to be. And still, on rare occasions, can be. I mean, these guys are liabilities with the disc in their hands. They get it, you pressure them, and right in their face. Rise above, we're gonna rise above, rise above, we're gonna rise above. The next person would come up to cut up the side. The next person would come up to cut up the side. Pour, 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 pour. Go out there. They're intense, fiercely competitive, abrasive, and not surprisingly, they're all New Yorkers. At one point or another in our lives, we've all done it. We've all picked up a frisbee and had a game of catch with our friends. We might have even let it get a little competitive, but there was no imagining scoring the tournament clinching goal or making a circus catch that wins the Super Bowl. That's because no one played frisbee professionally. No one could possibly turn this pastime activity into something legitimate. I'm uh, Sean Udo. I am a semi-retired touring ultimate player. I've been playing ultimate for 22 years. I played for the Queen's ultimate team, uh, Queen's University Mothership, and we won the Canadian University uh, National Championships in my last year in 2004, and also qualified for the American College Nationals. And uh, after that, I played on the Winnipeg men's touring team for three years and, uh, and went to Canadian uh, Nationals three times with, with that team, Winnipeg General Strike. Certainly, uh, when, I was, when I was first starting to play, especially back in high school in the, in the 90s, um, there was a big feeling in my high school and, uh, and among my, my peer groups that ultimate was kind of like football for wusses, they called it. Um, it was no contact, no referees, and uh, really it was a sport that was not played by your typical jock athletes. The official definition of ultimate is a non-contact team sport played by players with a flying disc or frisbee. As you're probably aware, Frisbee is a registered trademark name and not the actual name of the object. So, kind of like how Jacuzzi is a brand name line of hot tubs. Currently, there is only one semi-professional Ultimate League operating in North America. You can't talk about the legitimacy of the sport without talking about the pro leagues that have developed in the sport. So um, just up to last year, there were two professional ultimate leagues. Now it's only the American Ultimate Disc League, the AUDL, which is in its sixth season right now. And um, I've become a fan of the AUDL really only this year. And it's undeniable that they've got a great product. Now, before we can look at the present and future state of ultimate, 
we have to examine its past. Ultimate Frisbee, or Ultimate as it's more commonly known as, hasn't been around as long as baseball, football, or hockey, but it's been floating around for longer than you might think. Team-based flying disc games using pie tins and cake pan lids were part of Amherst College student culture for decades before plastic discs were available. A similar two-hand touch football-based game was played at Kenyon College in Ohio around 1942. In 1966, Jared Cass and fellow Amherst students Bob Fain, Richard Jacobson, Robert Marblestone, Steve Ward, Fred Hoxie, Gordon Murray, and several others evolved a team frisbee game based on concepts from American football, basketball, and soccer. This game had some of the basics of modern ultimate, including scoring by passing over a goal line, advancing the disc by passing, no traveling with the disc, and turnovers on interception or incomplete pass. Jared, who was an instructor and dorm advisor, taught this game to high school student Joel Silver during the summer of 1967 at Mount Hermon Prep School Summer Camp. Yes, super producer of the Die Hard and Matrix franchises, Joel Silver. Whoa. Silver was so intrigued by what he had learned at camp that he and some friends at Columbia High School in Maplewood, New Jersey, introduced their idea of an ultimate frisbee game to their student council. The first known game was played in 1968 between the student council and the staff of the school newspaper. In 1969, a team had been formed at the school and they played in a parking lot. The only lines that existed were the goal lines, usually marked by telephone poles or piles of the players' coats. The first and second set of rules were written in 1970 by Joel Silver, Buzzy Hellring, and John Hines. On November 7th, Columbia High School played the first interscholastic game. They won over Milburn High School by a score of 43 to 10. Now, Ultimate was conceived in the U.S. in the midst of political assassinations, the escalating war in Vietnam, urban riots, and civil rights unrest. As increasing numbers of young people became alienated from the parental generation, they looked for forms of escape and resistance and loosely formed what became known as the counterculture. The forms of escape and resistance were shown in a multitude of ways, including political activism and protest, the creation of alternative lifestyles, experimental and communal living, and through drugs and music, of course. The values and behaviors that came to represent the counterculture, which was at its height in 1967 during what was termed the Summer of Love, were that of democracy, perceived alternative and superior lifestyle choices, communal caring and sharing, an appreciation of beauty and nature, having a relaxed and laid-back attitude, rejecting regulation and technology, and encouraging self-expression and personal growth. For the majority, being part of the counterculture was a frame of mind manifested in a particular way of life. To many, doing something dramatic was achieved in doing something differently and dropping the values of the mainstream and 
living in the here and now revolution. So to Joel Silver and his friends, Counterculture was creating a game that would embody all of these values, many of which still exist in Ultimate today, such as the spirit of the game. Also, we'll have kind of a unique game in Frisbee, a little bit like football, a little bit like soccer, a little like basketball. It's called Ultimate, Fred, and it's kind of fun to watch and play. Oh, they move rapidly, and, it, and the thing I, I thoroughly enjoy about this game, no officials. It's really a game of integrity. Uh, it's a game where the players really officiate themselves, and it's kind of a new wave sport. And I think many schools are going to be very interested in the uh, game of Ultimate. Ah, yes. Spirit of the game. No refs, no outside influence just the players using the honor system to ensure fair play for all. It can't get any hippier than that. Ultimate has traditionally relied upon a spirit of sportsmanship, which places the responsibility for fair play on the player. Highly competitive play is encouraged, but never at the expense of the bond of mutual respect between players, the agreed-upon rules of the game, or the basic joy of play. Protection of these elements serves to eliminate adverse conduct from the ultimate field. So things like taunting of opposing players, dangerous aggression, intentional fouling, or other win-at-all-costs behavior are contrary to the spirit of the game and must be avoided by all players. The epitome of counterculture. The first collegiate ultimate game was played between Rutgers and Princeton on November 6, 1972. Rutgers won the game 29-27. The two universities had played the first intercollegiate football game on the same ground exactly 103 years earlier, and Rutgers also won that game by two points. The first organized tournament, the National Collegiate Championships, were played on April 25, 1975. Eight teams took part in this tournament, which took place at Yale University. Rutgers won the final against Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute with a 28-24 win. In 1976, the Yale tournament was expanded and renamed into the National Ultimate Frisbee Championship. And Rutgers won again. In 1975, Ultimate was introduced into the World Frisbee Championships, and by 1979, the Ultimate World began to see a rapid turnover in the types of players that were playing the game. The sport was evolving into more about fierce competition and less about um, let's all have a good time and hug at the end. The West Coast was giving way to the East Coast, or more specifically, New York. New York City in the 1980s was vastly different than the hipster-filled, trendy New York we know today. It was a hotbed of crime, gang activity, and to put it mildly, a rough-and-tumble attitude. 1983 marked a turning point in the early development of Ultimate Frisbee. The first world championships were taking place in Europe, and two of the sport's greatest players, Pat King and Kenny Dobbins, had teamed up on Team Kaboom. And when you're talking rough and tumble, you're pretty much describing Kenny Dobbins. What keeps me going is an insane hatred of losing. I really hate to live, particularly to Boston. Kenny Dobbins was the epitome of 1980s New York. 
and he was and still is one of the most recognizable and important names in Ultimate. As the soul of the New York, New York dynasty, he helped lead the team to six national and four world championships. He was an innovator in ultimate strategy and tactics, incorporating a system of structured set play offenses, complicated switching defenses, and a serious training regimen that made New York, New York nearly unbeatable during their reign atop the sport. However, Dobbins' win-at-all-costs approach wasn't really loved by everyone, especially Boston Titanic legend Steve Mooney. Something that, that is incredibly important to me is... Um, the, the, the concept of Spirit of the Game. And I think that somewhere along the line, they got the definition mixed up. Spirit of the Game to me is just giving everything you have to the game and playing hard, playing to win. But that's not Spirit of the Game. At least that's not how I define it. Others sometimes think, Spirit of the Game, come on, show some spirit. That is the Spirit of the Game. I mean, you know... And I'm going to just go off because Ultimate players are nothing if not totally arrogant. And Ultimate as a sport is, is really arrogant. This idea that Ultimate invented spirit. You know, Ultimate gave spirit a name, spirit of the game. But, you know, the, the human spirit of athletic competition has been around forever. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Spirit of the game, in my opinion, is fair play. Um, they got, there's a definition. It's got a lot of words in it. But I always thought fair play. And we grew up playing basketball, playing you know, touch football in the street, whatever. There's no refs. This was not new. Regardless of Mooney's interpretation of the spirit of the game and Dobbins' perceived lack of it, 1980's Ultimate was filled with ferocious competition and fierce rivalries. By the mid-1980s, Ultimate was getting too big to be ignored by mainstream sports media. And the 1985 World Championships began getting some media love. In 1989, Ultimate was shown as an exhibition sport during the World Games in Karlsruhe, West Germany. That year also saw the first World Club Ultimate Championship in Cologne, West Germany. In 1991, Jose Cuervo Tequila, fresh off of putting beach volleyball on the map, decided to sponsor Ultimate. We were so immersed in the culture of it and sort of the importance of it that we thought that everybody else must get the importance of it too. And, and we were wrong. We did, you know, a piece on TBS and, and a piece on NBC and on ABC and on ESPN and MTV. But each of them was an isolated glimpse into a counterculture world that they thought was relevant as kind of a sideshow. It wasn't really about, this is the beginning of an explosion of the game. In an attempt to make the game more exciting, a two-point gold shot rule was introduced and ended up deciding the first championship. Purists of the sport hated this new endeavor and rejected any type of augmentation to Ultimate's rules for the purpose of commercialization. Ah, counterculture is back. Cuervo pulled out of its sponsorship just after three seasons. And in 2001, Ultimate was included as a medal sport in the World Games in Akita, Japan, along with disc golf. Six countries were invited to compete based on their finishes in the World Flying Disc Federation's 2000 World Ultimate Championship in Germany. Canada won the World Games gold medal with an overtime victory over the U.S. 
in 2009, the World Games in Kaohsiung, Chinese Taipei, and Ultimate outdrew all other sports with more than 50,000 paid in attendance. The same occurred at the 2013 World Games in Cali, Colombia, where the paid attendance was over 45,000. In 2010, the American Ultimate Disc League was founded and had their inaugural season in 2012. Major League Ultimate had its inaugural season in 2013 but ceased operations in 2016 due to a lack of funding. The AUDL, however, is still going strong and still growing. I think right now, Ultimate is, is going through some very exciting times.、Um, and so to predict. What's going to happen with the sport in 10 years?、Um, I find very difficult because there are so many、uh, issues currently in the world of Ultimate that are kind of awaiting、uh, resolution or, or、um, expansion on them. The general public is far more familiar today with Ultimate now than ever before, but there's still work to be done to spread Ultimate to a new audience. The fact that these pro leagues have developed, or I guess just the AUDL has developed,、um, is very exciting. But as far as I know, the AUDL is still、uh, losing money on most of the games. The owners of the teams are still losing money. So、um, it's, not, it's not really、um, a professional sport. All of the players still have day jobs. I don't think they get paid very much to, to play these games. There's one more hurdle that the sport is still trying to overcome. And actually, it's a hurdle that many of the big sports are still trying to conquer. So, this is a sport that's played by both men and women, but there's only a men's professional ultimate league.、Um, and, this is, um, and that means that many of the、uh, men's games are seen by many more people because these games are streamed online, tickets are sold for people to come and watch. These、uh, men's professional teams don't have to pay their way traveling across the country and, in fact, get small stipends for the games. Whereas、uh, the women's teams across Canada and the United States、uh, don't have any sort of funding for, for their games, don't have quite the same exposure. Ultimate has made strides in the 40 plus years since it started, and as athletes evolve, so will the sport. But there are a few things that are likely to remain. The spirit of the game, however it's interpreted, will always be the fabric that makes up Ultimate, and integrity will always be at the center of every game. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sports Hipster Podcast, and I'd also like to thank my guest, Sean Udo. You can subscribe to and download the Sports Hipster Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Sports Hipster Podcast is brought to you by Left Turn Media. Visit leftturn.ca for more info.